The following lecture was delivered by Richard Sharp to the Friends of the Book Arts Press on Monday, the 30th of April, 1990. His topic, On Getting Published as a New Author in Angevin, England. Good evening. There is a minor threat of lectures looming up in May and June, a period when this theater is normally dark. But at the moment, I have only to announce the lecture on the 7th of May, next Monday, by Rosamond McKittrick from Newnham College, Cambridge. She and her husband, David McKittrick, are very old friends of this podium, speaking on book production in 9th century Gaul. Our speaker this evening, Richard Sharp, has been assistant editor of the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from British sources, working out of the Bodleian Library at Oxford University. He is shortly to become reader and diplomatic at Oxford, and will be speaking to us tonight on getting published as a new author in Angevin, England. It's a great pleasure to welcome him here. Right. Am I audible at the right sort of level? Good. The exact uh, nature of my title is, um, is loose. The date range Angevin I shall um, spread over, though the country range England I shall probably not. These are limitations mainly on my knowledge. Uh, that I've worked chiefly from English sources and I know a good deal more about the the Anglo-Norman and Angevin period than about other periods. There's also the fact that before this period there is so little new book production, that is the production of books by new authors, uh, that one couldn't really talk about the subject at all. And after the Angevin period, after John particularly, then England begins to see university book production in a much more organized way, which changes the nature of publication. Publication is really the concept I'm interested in discussing. In the contemporary um, world of, of the book trade, we are quite used to the distinction between printing and publishing. Though obviously you don't need to go back very far to find that the role of the publisher was very much an adjunct to the role of the printer. The emergence of a mechanism for getting a book into circulation as distinct from producing the artifact is, from an institutional point of view, relatively new. But the concept, I think, is not... When one looks at the Middle Ages, there has been a great deal of study of book production by medieval book specialists of one kind or another, be it paleography, codicology, the workings of scriptoria, and so on. A quite different class of scholar has worked on the texts, the process of Establishing texts has been the field of philologists, and text transmission is seen as a very, very much a separate uh, line of business from paleography, though the one uh, has often served the other um, in an indispensable way. These days, I find in uh, British universities, the two are increasingly separate. And we now have paleographers who really have very little interest in the texts and are chiefly concerned with the letter forms on the page. This, I think, is a rather dangerous um, se separation. Still, uh, to go into this question of publishing, it's clearly um, a function. It uh, hinges on the capacity of production to produce copies for distribution. The printed book will produce a number of copies which is sufficiently large, even in the early stages, that the room starts to fill up and you want to distribute them. With manuscript production, this is not the case. 
Ordinarily, in the early Middle Ages, and to a very large extent right through the Middle Ages, one manuscript was copied at a time from another. And it's only in specialized circumstances that you will find five, six, seven, eight being copied from dictation in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. With manuscript production and manuscript publication, once a copy exists, anyone else can copy it. So that the um, dissemination goes on beyond any control from the point where it began. The assumption has always been that the multiplication of copies is demand-led. If I want a copy of a book, I find someone who's got it or a library which has got it and I make arrangements to copy it or have it copied and there I've got a copy. There is no expectation, generally speaking, that the author of any book wanted to put out this work to an audience. The same pattern, I think, happens today with books out of copyright where if there is seen to be a market for a book, various publishers will produce an edition. And this is certainly what was happening with backlist books in the Middle Ages. If you want a copy of works of St. Augustine or Gregory the Great, you find one and you copy it. But with new authors, this would not work in quite such a straightforward way. And it's with new authors that the notion of publication becomes particular. It's an elusive notion. Uh, Peter of Blois, for example, um, in a letter to a friend, says, you cannot have my book yet, for before it may go out in publicum, to the public, it must feel the judgment of the corrector's file, lest there remain in it anything shapeless or less than polite, less than polished, perhaps I should say. When he says in publicum, he's not meaning before the first thousand go into the bookstalls. He may even be meaning before I will let you, my friend, have a copy. Erdmer, somewhat earlier in the 12th century, writes, during this period, Anselm also wrote a book, De Conceptu Virginali et De Peccato Originali, and another opusculum, which found favor and gave joy to many, which he entitled Meditatio Redemptionis Humanae. How this book left Anselm's pen and came to give joy to many is left unspecified. In another passage in the same work, Edmund's Life of St. Anselm, he says, as for the prayers which at the desire and request of his friends he wrote and published, Southern's translation, the Latin is scriptas aided it, gave out in written form. One asks, what exactly is the force of aidery in this sentence, to give out. The notion of publication is, I think, important. When reading a text, it's usually desirable to bear in mind for whom the writer was writing. The stage between writer and audience is what I'm regarding as publication. And it's proper that we should ask how this was achieved. One has also to bear in mind the question to what extent it represents an initiative by a writer who wishes to produce a work and have it read, or whether the writer is merely responding to the demands of would-be readers. It's a commonplace in medieval prefaces that the writer will say, here is the book you have been asking me to produce, implying that otherwise he would never have written it, though very often this can only be a matter of form. Medieval writers, like modern writers, had very much the wish to see their works known and circulating, and also to have the guarantee that they would continue to be available for future generations. 
the concept of how a book progressed from writer to reader, to borrow a phrase known to you all, has fallen out of sight in the medieval context. The transmission of a text, or Überlieferungsgeschichte, is more often seen as a, as a technical procedure and it's left to the editors of texts. It's equated in many people's minds with the process which Lachmann, the German textual critic of the last century, termed Rekensio, the preparation for editing a text. Textual critics have often, indeed almost always, left it at that. The study of how a work was handed down is a mere preparation for unpeeling the layers of its transmission in order to arrive back at the original. To the student of the work, and more importantly to the historian, the reception and use of a book from age to age is itself important. The progress of transmission, however, is often influenced and in some cases actually determined by the initial stage of how it was first published. Textual historians, in the narrow sense, concerned with the establishment of the, of the text, may be reluctant to become too involved with the manuscripts. For editing many texts, it's necessary only to ascertain which are the good ones and perhaps then to work from a relatively small number. In any complex transmission, the manuscript evidence can soon overwhelm the editor and can in any case be a great distraction, filling the bottom of the page with useless information which will make very little sense as a means of presenting the history of the, of the book's reception over the centuries and is in most cases irrelevant to the establishment of the critical text. An author to whom this very much applies, with whom I spent a couple of years, is the Irish writer Cogitosus, 86 manuscripts. If I had pursued all of them, I could probably have written a book which was in no sense an edition of Cogitosus, but was a study of the channels of literary contact because a textual comparison would show, or enable me to show, that this monastic house obtained its text from that monastic house, and one could draw up the dissemination from century to century and from country to country of this work. Other works um, would easily lend themselves to this kind of uh, study, The Life of St. Cyprian, in well over 200 manuscripts is something I've often thought a text historian should look at with this in mind. But it's not what the editor should be interested in. His work is properly author-led, and for him the transmission is important only in respect of arriving at how he can choose between readings in his manuscripts. But unless the editor has some understanding of questions concerning publication, the process of recensio can give a very misleading impression. The editor of Gilbert Crispin's Disputatio Judei et Christiani, for example, identifies six authorial recensions in the text. The grouping of manuscripts by their variants led her to the conclusion that, that Gilbert several times issued revised and updated copies. But she does not say how she perceived this happening. Of course, he could not call back earlier copies already in circulation, and copies of those could continue to be produced outside the author's control while he had attempted to put into circulation a revised copy this problem affected Anselm. Erdmer tells us in the prologue to his Descriptio Miraculorum Gloriosi Patris Anselmi that he could not add the visions and miracles surrounding the archbishop's death to his life of Anselm. For, and I quote, the book of the life has now been transcribed by many and distributed to various churches 
and it is not easy for me to gather the volumes together to add or subtract anything. So I shall make a new beginning for those things which I am going to write. Out of the manuscript copies of this work, five have actually brought together the life and the miracles. But one of these, Corpus Christi, Cambridge 371, is Erdmer's personal fair copy. And another, uh, Harley 315 in the British Library, is a copy made for the library at Christchurch, where Erdmer was writing. In Erdmer's case, he put out a supplementary work. Gilbert appears to have been putting out further stages of his work. He can start a text, a revised text, on its course. But what are we to term these different versions? The editor will call them recensions. Should we think of them in the publisher's sense as editions? Or is it something more casual? Gerald of Wales was forever revising his books. But in, in most cases, we have little... Um, little chance of seeing how and exactly when it happened. The editors of his most popular works, the two books on Irish and Welsh uh, topography and history, have divided the textual witnesses of these books into several editions, using that word rather than recension. And in the case of the Expugnatio Hibernica, there are several intermediate editions as well as those numbered 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's not clear whether the editor perceived these as arising from contamination between different states of the text or whether they were intermediate in the sense that they were issued from the author between uh, versions that were different enough to be termed editions. But I think these terms edition and recension have meaning only as perceived by the editor. When one looks at how Gerald set about putting his works into circulation, we can infer that what was happening was that he drafted a text initially on tablets and then had that copied into a working copy he kept his working copy with him and he worked on it and he worked on it he would add leaves he would add paragraphs in the margins he would add paragraphs in the margins of the added leaves and whenever he saw an opportunity for an audience he had one of his clerks produce a fair copy of his working text with a a presentation dedication and it will be given to a um, someone hoped to be a patron in one manuscript we can see very clearly that this is happening uh, Vatican Reginensis Latinus 470 um, containing his speculum duorum edition is much too strong a word for the different stages at which copies branch off from a single parent in this way and recension is an unsuitable word because I think it implies the reverse process. The recension is the editor's job of creeping back up from these versions. We lack a way of expressing clearly what is happening. We need a marriage of the text historical recensio, which uncovers the textual evidence, and the manuscript approach, which looks at how the author fed his work into the top of the stemmer, if I can present it in that way. I think it's necessary to develop what amounts to a, a new form of textual bibliography that's applicable to the medieval book. Bibliography, as I understand it, involves the systematic description and history of books, their authorship, their printing, their publication, editions, and so on. Manuscript studies, to my mind, are not doing this. We have a great deal of work on scribes, on books and their codicology, on book collectors, and on libraries and library catalogues, which provides a different and very interesting slant on 
um, the context in which books were used as transmitters of learning. But too often, this is a specialist area for manuscript students, manuscript librarians, paleographers. Studying manuscripts without reference to their, context, their contents and certainly without reference to the text historical data of their contents. An outstanding exception was Neil Kerr's study of the copies of Augustine's De Genesiad Literam, written at Canterbury and at Rochester at the beginning of the 12th century, where he identified from the textual readings that the monks of Rochester were obtaining their copies from Canterbury and he sought out where Canterbury was obtaining its copy from and therefore building up precisely a history of how this book came to be in the libraries where it rested. There is much to be learnt from this approach about the transmission of learning as well as of the texts involved. But it's really applicable only to old books and not to modern ones. I've not found any means of doing this with an author such as Anselm at the beginning of the 12th century or Gerald at the end. If one looks at any medieval library catalogue, the great majority of its books were more or less standard works. Uh, in the 12th century, lots of patristic theology, biblical manuscripts, some catalogues will also include the inevitable liturgical manuscripts, though often they weren't catalogued. You know they were there. In the 12th century, one would also expect probably to find some modern Victorine books. But the Victorines in Paris were geared up to producing copies for dissemination uh, in modest numbers. And they even provided a copying library, slower and more expensive than the Xerox. But if you wanted a copy of a Victorine book you could perfectly straightforwardly make arrangements to stay there and the materials for your making the copy would be supplied. Even a peculiarly rich and detailed catalogue, such as that of Reading Abbey from about 1190, contains almost nothing by contemporary English authors. Um, fewer than ten works, I say, off the top of my head, though I haven't actually um, brought my edition of it with me to count, and I should have counted beforehand. Does this suggest that modern authors in England were not actually being published? Or simply that copies were not going into libraries or even not being catalogued? By publication, do we mean the making of a work accessible for the public to read or to own? For most of the books written by the great majority of the 150-odd Anglo-Latin authors writing between 1070 and 1210, the witness of the extant copies suggests that ownership of such works was not important and was not expected. One may have owned Augustine, Gregory, and such authors. One may have owned a modest collection of classical poets. In France, students seem to have owned copies of some works by their teachers. But one did not expect to own, for example, the works of John of Salisbury. Four out of eight copies of his Polycraticus are contemporary, and all can be, tra can be traced to John's personal friends. Each of them was a presentation copy. Should we regard the Polycraticus as a published work or as an unpublished work? In the age of the printed word, it's generally easy to tell whether a book was published or not. Where a modern book exists in one manuscript copy, one would assume no publication. If it exists in several or many manuscript copies, as is the case with some of Rochester's poems, one would say that it circulated within a group of associates, but one might not say that it was published. The printed book, generally speaking, is made available to a wider audience, since however the limited intentions, uh, at least a hundred copies or so, are likely to have been run off. It's scarcely possible for us to ask whether they were read. Um, I can think of cases where 
um, a book was printed, um, Malachius Hibernicus on the Seven Deadly Sins, for example, printed in Paris in 1518, is now an extremely rare work in that form. Though there are 60-odd manuscripts surviving from the late 13th and 14th centuries. Does this mean that Malachius was unpopular? Or does it mean that he was, uh, that printed copies of the work were read to extinction? As is the case with so many of the um, the children's books of which extremely rare copies have now been acquired by the Bodleian in the Opie collection. The guide to a work's popularity would be the number and variety of editions in the bibliographical sense rather than the number of surviving copies. In the same way that the modern reader, um, the modern reader can usually tell at a glance the difference between a mass-produced paperback a short-run academic monograph, a limited edition for private circulation, a Xeroxed typescript to pass around members of a governing body in a a college, an author's manuscript draft, a private scrapbook, and an office ledger. But when you take away printing, if you have a single copy of a medieval work in manuscript, format alone is not likely to be enough to tell you whether the book was published at all. Strictly domestic books, cartularies, ledgers and so on, would never have been published and one would not expect them to be printed now. Semi-domestic books, um, a formulary for example, produced for a single house, might have been found useful and copied elsewhere. Someone may have left one religious house and gone to another thinking I'll take a copy of my familiar formulary with me. Domestic chronicles are ordinarily written for a single religious house. The dossier on the local saint, similarly. But such works do get into a limited circulation. In the case of Gosselin of Canterbury, he actually envisaged that the audience would have a different um, expectation and produced two parallel forms of his life of St. Augustine, a long version for the monks of St. Augustine's in Canterbury, his own house, who were expected to have a higher boredom threshold on the subject of St. Augustine's activities, and a shorter version for the rest of the reading public. We have two copies of the domestic version, and we have one from outside of the supposed popular version. Then there's another kind of domestic publication. Um, Peter of Cornwall, prior of Holy Trinity Oldgate in London, one of London's three major religious houses, distributed copies in small numbers of his books. Almost all the surviving manuscripts of any of his works can be traced back to the author. And in some cases we can see to which of his friends they were given. In the era before books were printed, it is often much harder to tell whether a piece of writing remained in its author's chest or cupboard for his own and his friend's use, or whether it was made available to any who might want it. Once the author is dead, his book may pass to a friend and then be placed in a library, and it can be impossible centuries later to tell whether this book is a unique production or merely a unique survivor of a book which was circulating. Quickly thumbing through a volume of letters in manuscript may not be enough to indicate, therefore, whether it's a textbook, such as the letters of Augustine, um, a specimen of Belles Lettres, Peter of Blois produced his own standard letter collection with that in mind, a formulary to teach you how to write letters properly, and there was no particular reason why these should be produced in more than one copy, you compile your own or a register of letters received or sent, such as you might keep in the office. The surviving letter books of the priors of Durham and Canterbury fall into this category. How can one begin, therefore, to look at the question if the evidence of the actual books is not enough um, to build an interpretation? What evidence can we use to try and assess whether a work was published and at what level of distribution? and how it achieved its level of distribution. 
We have primary statements by authors, especially prefaces, which may indicate to whom they intend the work to go out. We have secondary statements referring to their works um, in the works of others. And we have um, third-level comments, one writer to another, saying he's acquired a copy of uh, the initial writer's work. We have quotations from a work in another's writings, an indication of its reception, though we should be cautious here. A work can be received even if there is only ever one copy. William of Malmesbury shows a very wide reading. It would be scarcely possible that the library at Malmesbury contained all the works from which he quotes, and we know that he actually travelled around the country looking for books in libraries. He quotes Alexander of Canterbury on the miracles of St. Anselm, an extremely rare work not known to have circulated outside Canterbury. William must have read this on one of his several visits to Canterbury, and there is no need to suppose that because the work was received by William of Malmesbury that it was in any sense available at Malmesbury. Another form of evidence will be textual evidence in the transmission of copies, where one has few copies transmitted, generally speaking, very accurately. One may guess that there is a fairly close connection between them and that the number of lost copies is not great. But if the textual divergence is extensive and if the transmission is further uh, complicated by contamination from different traditions, then one must suppose that there were rather more copies in circulation and that the book had a wider, a wider audience. And sometimes there's the physical evidence of the actual books. A manuscript such as that I mentioned earlier of Gerald of Wales, uh, Reginensis Latinus 470, was clearly not a circulating book and had to be an author's working copy. The concept of publication, a rapid communication to a wide audience, was perfectly familiar in the late 11th century and the early 12th century. A writ sent out to summon clergy to a synod at a particular time and place, or to notify the nobility to attend the king at Christmas, is an elementary form of the phenomenon, though a writ may run to only three or four lines. The copies will not be identical but for the most part, only the address will differ. Anselm swears to Gerard, Archbishop of York, in 1103, that he was not responsible for the publicatio, the making public, of certain letters. He had not transcribed them, he had not had them transcribed, nor had he shown them to anyone. But a letter was something which was produced with the intention of being circulated wild, widely. And clearly here the expectation is that it might be cir circulated more widely than its author intended. When Gilbert of Limerick wrote his pamphlet based on Amalarius's treatise De Officiis Divinis at the beginning of the 12th century, he prefaced it with an open letter to all the Irish bishops. And it's perfectly likely that copies were sent out if not to all the Irish bishops, then at least to a large number of them. The work is short enough as a pamphlet to have started with the physical form of a letter, one sheet of parchment, perhaps a scheda rather than a schedula, the little slip on which letters were normally written. In one of Peter of Blois' letters, number 103 in the standard collection, he refers to the, pre the preceding letter, which runs to 11 columns of Patrologia Latina as a rotulus. And in the letter itself, Epistle 102.326a, he says that in this case, the schedula, the slip of parchment, has grown into an entire skin. The border between letter and pamphlet is difficult to draw. Peter's letter must have been sent out as a large sheet of parchment rolled up. But at some point, 
it would be necessary for the work to go into choir format simply because of its length. Guy of Amiens' Carmen de, Hastingo, de Hastingai Proilio is a booklet of the end of the 11th, the beginning of the 12th century, written at, um, now then, I don't know how to pronounce his name, St. Euker or Euker Matthias in Trier. It appears to be a copy of the author's original, which was deposited, it seems, at Saint-Riquier. A little book of this kind, a pamphlet, one can see going into circulation quite easily. And the multiplication of copies was the matter of only an hour or two, or perhaps a day or two's transcribing. It was quick, it was cheap. Many of Anselm's works were copied and recopied by interested readers in this way. The information to this effect comes more from his prefaces than from the actual manuscripts. Textual examinations of copies in larger manuscripts, however, enabled F.S. Schmidt, his editor, to identify some of the early copies, the early forms of the work. Some of these circulated anonymously. Uh, the first recension of his Monologion, for example, survives as a, a little book under the title Exemplum Meditandi de Ratione Fidei in Bibliothèque Nationale uh, for Latin 13413, a booklet, an anonymous booklet, and um, in a sense probably a pirated copy. In the preface to Cordeus Homo, completed at Canterbury about 1098, Anselm talks of incomplete copies of his works going into circulation, surreptitiously obtained and without authorization. The difficulties of publication, however, would increase with the size of the book. A normal pattern seems to have been that the author lent his fair copy to friends for copying, or, where demand was greater, permitted several copies to be made at once. The process of um, the assembling of the booklets, which we can see being produced in quite sizable numbers, into library books is to a large extent hidden. Uh, we have relatively few booklets, but we know about them from statements of this kind. And these short works then appear in manuscript volumes containing 16, 18, 20 short works. And the widely circulating quickly made student copies for the most part have disappeared. One has to bear in mind therefore that there is in many cases a hidden stage between the surviving manuscript witnesses and the original form in which a book circulated. This kind of dissemination sits uneasily I think with the idea of an edition being published at a particular date and I think it's unlikely that the variation in the works of Gilbert Crispin's Disputation with the Jew were in any sense, any, any formal sense, editions. One copy might be made soon after the work was completed, another several years later. The descendants of two such copies, even transcripts of almost contemporary date, may be textually indistinguishable. Um, they may, on the other hand, be textually quite distinguishable, but it would not be possible to say whether they were authorised or not. Copyright scarcely existed, even though an author might try, and we know that some authors did try, to ensure that illegitimate copies did not get far. He would do it by producing authorised copies, and his concern was for the quality of his words and their transmission, and almost certainly not for any income that might arise from the circulation. A major constraint on whether a book got into circulation was probably cost. Peter of Cornwall's Pantheologus runs to, oh, I suppose, about a million and a half words, three very, very large volumes. He was able to produce three copies, four copies, because money was provided by the Bishop of Winchester to pay scribes to produce them. Otherwise, it would have remained forever in his study, which was the fate of the smaller 
and to my mind more interesting, Liber Revelationum, which is only half a million words, but we have only his desk copy in Lambeth Palace Library. Another possible reason working on a book like this and limiting its circulation was the interest which the potential readership had in the work. But if we look at the actual numbers of copies um, solely in the light of the interest of the audience, then one would have to think that few authors in England wrote books which aroused much interest. Some we know wrote entirely for their own communities. Hugh the Chanter expected no audience outside York. Some wrote entirely for themselves. Richard of Devizes um, wrote an interesting, amusing, and at times scurrilous history of his times. And the manuscript we have, Corpus Christi, Cambridge 339, is very clearly his own copy. One can see from the way it's laid out and the way he's been adding to it at different stages. The majority probably wrote for friends, uh, the majority who regarded their works as of um, literary interest rather than a merely factual interest. Reginald of Canterbury sent copies to his limited circle of friends, and we have poems which accompanied these copies, and we have poems of thanks from friends Hildebert or Thomas of York acknowledging such gifts. Peter of Blois lent copies of his early writings to a friend. Years later, he found himself without them, and he had to recover the manuscript by asking the friend for it back. So here, the circulation does not involve a multiplication of copies at all, but merely the passing of one copy from hand to hand. The exchange of books was at some level an extension of the exchange of letters. With more substantial works, the intention behind a presentation copy to a friend was probably that it should eventually be deposited in a library where others might read it and where it might be copied. John of Salisbury, for example, addresses his Historia Pontificalis to his friend Peter of Sell, presenting him with a copy with the intention that this be available in a library. The work is now only known from a later medieval transcript of this lost copy, which was apparently preserved in the library at Lyon. We know that there was a library copy at Canterbury, now lost. It was known to Jervis of Canterbury in the early thir- beginning of the 13th century, and it appears later in the Middle Ages in Prior Henry of Eastry's catalogue of the library. But in spite of this very limited circulation and traceable, narrow distribution, the work, according to its preface, is overtly written to profit my contemporaries and future generations. Publication was something which an author could achieve, therefore, by the giving of a few copies to friends or patrons. The successful distribution of the book might never happen, Or it might happen, but only years after it was originally written, decades, centuries. Under these circumstances, it's not always easy to see the motivation behind the writing. Gerald of Wales is an author who is clearly crying out for recognition. He wants the learned world and the not-so-learned, to see that he is a great stylist, that he's an extremely clever man, that he writes interestingly and wittily. And yet, almost all his works survive now in single copies. In most cases, we can't demonstrate that they're presentation copies, but a high proportion of these single copies do date from the first quarter of the 13th century. The prefaces indicates that the form of the book as represented was intended uh, for presentation to an individual. Now, a, a dedication preface doesn't tell you that the copy in which it appears was designated as the copy to be given to that individual. Um, Geoffrey of Monmouth has a 
dedication to Robert Earl of Gloucester, which appears in uh, the vast majority of copies of the work. Um, 200 years later, they were obviously not intended to be given individually to the Earl of Gloucester. But in the case of Gerald, it appears from the form of his texts where we can compare different um, manuscript witnesses in those works where manuscripts survive in numbers, that he was constantly producing individual new presentation copies. And I think it quite likely that those early 13th century single copies that we have may represent fair copies produced with this in mind. One day I have in mind to compare the handwriting of such books with the handwriting of books copied in the library at Lincoln, where Gerald found a comfortable retirement after 1212 until his death in the 1220s the period when he was most active in producing presentation copies. I suspect that one would find that he was hiring Lincoln scribes to produce these. But he was doing it because he wanted an audience. Right at the beginning of his career, when he produced his um, Topographia Hibernii, he held this celebrated public reading over three days in Oxford, uh, which was no doubt intended to attract um, subscription orders. Now, there was some, some work of multiplication for an audience in Anglo-Latin works is Geoffrey of Monmouth. No other author um, outside the fathers is known from such a large number of medieval copies. And no other author is known from copies multiplied so quickly. Um, I say this hesitantly, uh, but I believe it is, is true even when one takes account of authors such as Aquinas, who were being published in an organized way by the Dominicans of Paris in his lifetime. How did Geoffrey achieve it? And what was the difference in his book that meant that copies were produced or were wanted? A possible answer, and one which I um, have to express some reservations about, is that this is a work of literature, um, literature of entertainment, and is the um, the 12th century equivalent of the, the paperback which one buys to read on the train. Ordinarily, such books would have been in the vernacular. The, the editor of one of Geoffrey's other works, The Life of Merlin, commented that literature in the early 12th century was a decentralized affair produced by clerks for the solar classes, that is, the aristocratic families living in a round of constantly reforming house parties in their cramped Peel Tower country houses. The, the promotion of a book was a personal matter, unless one had the ear of, say, a queen, as Benedict had for his Voyage of St. Brendan. Benedict's Voyage of St. Brendan was written in Anglo-French and not in Latin, and might have expected to be more widely understood. But how many of the solar classes would have wanted a sizable book in Latin. And in any case, most of the extant copies of Geoffrey of Monmouth are not as single work volumes. They're volumes in which Geoffrey's work is amalgamated with other books. So that one can't simply say that there was a different audience and that therefore there emerged around Geoffrey's work a means of publication, of wide distribution, that didn't work for others. I have no um, explanation to offer, therefore, here for why Geoffrey's work did multiply in that form, though the list of uh, the catalogue of manuscripts containing it, which was published in December by Boydell and Brewer, promises to follow um, a companion work by Julia Crick of Cambridge on the phases of its dissemination when we may learn more. But for the most part, the modern authors were learned authors 
and the means of distribution that we can see must have been analogous to the circulation of what I described earlier as the short-run academic monograph. These were books which one did not need to produce in large numbers. They were books which reposed in libraries, and the scholar was prepared to travel to find his book, to study it, to make his notes if he made notes, and in this sense to work at some distance. It was not that publication was, um, that more widespread publication was unknown or even impossible. It seems to have been the case that publication that was achieved was sufficient. If a work were small and convenient and handy, then lots of people wanting it could get it. But once you get up to the larger scale where it is simply more difficult, then you didn't expect to own it, you travelled. And the author, therefore, could, generally speaking, have not expected widespread fame or credit. Beryl Smalley once remarked of Herbert of Bosom that after his patron Thomas a Beckett's murder, he had three choices for his future livelihood. He could become a monk, in which case he would be looked after. He could become a teacher, in which case he would earn his daily bread. Or, she said, he could become an author, and this is precisely what he did. But he didn't survive as an author on his royalties. He can only have survived as an author because he found someone who was prepared to give him a research fellowship to write. I suspect that the pattern of publication that most English authors achieved in this period suggests that they too were working on what amount to research fellowships uh, more successfully in the case of Herbert of Bossom or of John of Salisbury and less successfully in the case of Gerald of Wales. Uh, a pity because on the whole his works are the more interesting. I hope that in arriving at uh, what may seem um, from the point of view of the 12th century a rather limited and perhaps even depressing conclusion that I've not undermined the point at which I, uh, which I began by making that publication exists as a concept which we should look at and that we cannot really understand the uh, significance, the use of books in this period simply by working from book production on the one hand and textual criticism on the other, and that we need some means in between. We need some means of expressing how the textual transmission happened in terms of how the books and why the books were put into circulation in the way they were, and not merely in how the materials were got together and used. Thank you.